I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And a good Sunday morning to y'all on this overcast, less sweltering Bridgeport summer day after two days of intense heat and frustration here in the city. I am, as always, Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jim. Today we're going to be talking to the author of a new book that is out. It is in my hot little hand. You can't see it because this is radio. It's not television. It is called The Most Fun We Ever Had. We're going to be speaking momentarily with the author, Claire Lombardo. She's waiting on the line expectantly. But first, one piece of business. I'd like to uh, take a personal moment, if I could, to wish my father an 80th birthday. Today is his birthday. He was born on the anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Happy birthday, Happy Mr. Birthday, Trekker. And he's Trekker. very disappointed it has not become a national holiday. So all of you out there who have always wanted to have another national holiday, may we suggest July 21st. All right, my congressman. Right, your congressman right now. As I mentioned, we do have Claire Lombardo. She is joining us on the phone. Claire, are you with us? I am, yeah. Hi. Hey, Claire. How are you doing today? Hi, good. How are you guys? Good. Now, you're a Chicago native, and uh, first of all, congratulations on the book. It debuted uh, uh, in your first week on the New York Times bestseller list. Did you expect that? Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> yeah? Well, how, what, did you, did, does the New York Times, when you get on the bestseller list, do they send you like a care package or balloons or gifts or anything? Um, yeah, like a crown, yeah. Do they? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Do, are you wearing yeah. it right now? Yes, yes. Cool. All right, yeah. don't take that TR off. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. Does it, does it say New York Times on it, too? And it, like a little tag, probably? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's classified, but yes. Okay, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. So you grew up in the Chicago area, uh, and this is your debut novel, am I correct? Yes, that's right. Right. And, and where you grew up in the Oak, is it Oak Park? Oak Park, Oak Park area? Yeah. Oak Park, So yeah. And, yeah. and this is a book that uh, people who read it will, will see a lot of things they recognize from Chicago. What inspired you to write this book? It is a story of uh, a group of sisters and intergenerational uh, stuff. Uh, I don't think I'm giving away too much of the plot by saying the the book uh, gets going when a child who was given up for adoption earlier uh, suddenly comes back into these sisters' lives. What inspired you to to write about this particular subject? Um, You know, it started out as a story about one of the sisters um, who's kind of manufactured this sort of picture-perfect life for herself, and then it's kind of upended by the arrival of this kid that she wasn't expecting to ever see again. Um... And I think as I was writing about that, I became more and more obsessed with the people kind of floating around her than I was with her, um, that being her sort of terribly in love parents and her kind of um, rabble-rousing sisters. So it just kind of kept growing and growing and growing. <laughs> it's a very long book, but um, I think I, I started with that kind of dynamic of just a pretty like, classic narrative technique, like the outsider coming in and shaking things up. Um, but I also wanted to, I'm not a very plotty writer, um, so I wanted to kind of just really delve deep into these, these seven characters. Um, so it became less about, you know, completely about this kid coming into the picture and more about what this family looks like and what it looks like to live in a house with them. It's, I was doing some research for the show, and I was going to mention that quote that Hemingway made about 
Oak Park about the narrow minds and wide lawns, but I real, yes. I, I've discovered that that quote has never been actually 100 uh, percent vetted that he said that it was it's never been in, in any writing and there's no actual proof. That that oh, was, interesting. Yeah, that was it. Was in a Tribune article um, from 2014. It could have been from John Hemingway, you know, his le- lesser-known brother. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So <laughs> I think a lot of things get misattributed to Hemingway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, he he said a lot of interesting things, and he also one time said that no one in Oak Park likes me, which is funny now because he's <laughs> revered in Oak Park. Right. Right. He's they're like their darling. Yeah. <laughs> and I. I uh, I, I know I'm a fan of Hemingway, and the guys on mm-hmm. the show are. And I, 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 um, but I did want to talk to you about the setting because I think the setting is 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 crucial to the book. Uh, I, and first, I want to ask you: Are you from a big family? I am. I'm the youngest of five kids. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is there any crossover? I, I'm sure you're. If you have any sisters, oh. they would be angry if they were Violet or Wendy, but. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do have three sisters, and I have a brother. Um, and there is not. I would say there's as much crossover as there is from, like, anyone else in my life that I accidentally draw from. <laughs> but plot-wise and stuff, there's not, there's no overlap. With Do you my think they stuff. all read it? They did, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know they did. <laughs> you know, and that's... Um, as, yeah. Go ahead, but, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say I had sort of a satisfying moment when I gave it to one of my sisters early on. And, you know, she was she read it and she came back to me and said, I don't know which one is me. Like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> like, I... So I think she didn't feel that I had, you know, appropriated too much. Um, she didn't recognize herself or anyone else. So that's that's the goal, I guess. One of the things that we've learned doing the show over time, too, is people think that uh, the characters either represent authors' views or they're always autobiographical. I, I, I know one yeah. that comes up a lot is American Psycho and, you know. <laughs> right. And, uh. Ellis got a lot of flack, you know, because and they were like, "Is it him? Is he? Is he comparing his?" You know, and it's 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 kind of absurd. But I just was wondering if yeah. there was perhaps a lit. I come from a huge family too. Um, oh yeah. If there was any, uh, you know, tie-ins with any of your uh, brothers and sisters. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's more like I I'm I'm the youngest by far. Like, there's a big gap between me and my four siblings. Um, and I think I was a very quiet kid, and I was always kind of an observer and so I think a lot of that like my kind of fascination with my own family um and just my love for gossip and drama (laughs) like you know it's my favorite thing to talk about with with (laughs) friends is like they're weird families everyone has a weird family um so I think I definitely drew from that because it's an intense way to grow up with a lot of you know people kind of around you at all times (laughs) so I think I, I definitely pulled from that experience for sure you know, I, I read the uh, one of the reviews of the book. I, I think it was a New York Times review. I can't remember who wrote it, but um, they they mentioned somewhere in there about the the story never really going outside the family. It, it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go into issues, the larger issues of society, which and, is yeah. which is great, I think. Yeah. So the the way she wrote it was like kind of a backhanded compliment. Uh, yeah, she was yes, saying she exactly wished it, it it had, but <laughs> it didn't need to, or something to that effect. Um, was that a conscious choice for you, or was that just what what came out? It it was. I think. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I feel like at some point there are certain novels that I love that do both. That kind of delve deep into 
its characters into especially families, but then also have this really rich cultural backdrop. And I guess the ones I'm thinking of are Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, which is very much about a family, but it's also, you know, we sort of track the family based on the cultural landmarks that are happening in the background. So the race riots in Detroit and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then Peter Orner's Love and Shame and Love, which is also about a family in Chicago, um, but it's a political family. So you kind of see, you know, the different mayoral elections happening in the background and there's someone in the family is a judge. So you're kind of tracking what's going on in the city. Um, and I think at some point I love both of those books and I feel like, there were times when I thought, you know, I want to do that. I want to kind of more deeply explore kind of the weird cultural hypocrisy of Oak Park versus Chicago and um, the way that it's changed socioeconomically over the years and stuff like that. Um, And I had to cut a lot of that stuff because the book would have been 40,000 pages long (laughs) instead of, you know, it's however long it is now, five something. Um, So, and I think, I mean, I am a very character-driven writer, and I think there's kind of the joke when I was in grad school that I, you know, none of my stories had plots. They were all very long, and the characters all loved each other a lot. Like, there wasn't a lot of conflict. (laughs) Um, But I really love just, like, dwelling in those spaces. So I think at some point I made the decision to just, I just want to exist in this house with this family. And um and I think the Jonah character, who's the, the child that kind of comes out of the out of the fray, was sort of my effort to bring the outside in and kind of give us a, a little breather from this family. <clears throat> I remember a friend of mine reading an early draft, and he said, you know, I, there's like kind of a claustrophobic feeling reading this book. Like, I kind of want to get away from these people <laughs> sometimes. And I think Jonah's kind of... <laughs> yeah, that, I that felt that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're a really intense bunch of people. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think I wanted to keep it... Um, I, I, I like people. I like writing about people, and I find them sort of endlessly fascinating. So I did make a choice eventually to not, you know, I think there's a, I think I got a paragraph in about, you know, David talking about why he doesn't like Oak Park. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of my, my only sort of cultural nod. Yeah. I, I, f- I figured it was a conscious decision because I, I read a little bit about your background, and I saw that you worked for uh, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless for six years, so you obviously have a lot of experience yeah. Uh, uh, along a wide social strata and uh you know i don't i don't think anybody can can say that you weren't capable of well, doing that oh, is, I it, I, I, is I, it something you want to explore in the in your next work um which part the uh going uh farther out into a a, a wider array of characters in society yeah you know i think so i I sort of, I'm a very, stories kind of come to me, like I'll overhear someone say something just when I'm out in the world, or I will just suddenly, you know, a dynamic will kind of come to me, and I'll want to put those characters in a room together. Um, So I kind of, I think I come more from like a voice than I do from an agenda, but I think, um, I think the thought of writing kind of outside of this again, sort of claustrophobic family unit is really appealing to me because I've spent so much time in it the last few years. Um, So I think I I would like to explore further and look at, you know, different types of people because this is a very, you know, it's a sort of unsexy topic. These are upper middle class white people that I'm writing about. So I I know that's not necessarily, um, and that wasn't, you know, a strategic decision, but um, but I think because I had the, yeah, the confines of, 
this family and wanted to keep it under a thousand pages. <laughs> I had to stick with them. Yeah. I want to say though that I've read so many like politically charged novels in the last five years, and particularly well three since Trump got elected. And mm-hmm. I, I and I will say personally and. Um, I didn't grow up like this, but it was refreshing to read something that wasn't about politics or political issues or social issues. I mean, there, in some ways, it is about social issues because it's kind of, you know, the perfect parents with these sure. s- kind of awful kids. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, Violet and Wendy, I was just reading these and I, I sent Mike a text. I'm like, I hate Violet, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> He's hard to love. Yeah. Um, And so for me, I actually found it refreshing to read um, a book about upper class white people. I I, I thought it was kind of gutsy. I don't know how the conversation went with the publisher with uh, Doubleday. But, I mean, it's not really a a too trendy of a thing to to do right now. Yeah. And you came out, you know out of the gate on the bestseller list so i think that says something but for me okay you're writing about a culture that's unfamiliar to me you know and i've read that i mean obviously you know i've read tons of books about wealthy people but um Mm -hmm. what jeremy is trying to say is that we're all lower working class schlubs on the show yes yeah we all we all come from pretty like uh humble humble backgrounds humble backgrounds yeah that's a good way to put it um and we all love books and and literature thanks jamie Jamie has a. I have a tendency to ramble, and Jamie has a tendency to be able to sum it up. Well, thank you. You're um, very welcome. But, but I'm a librarian, and so a lot of people, a lot of people want to read about what they're not. So like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've learned through studies. I used to be a children's librarian. Like African American kids and kids that grew up in uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods like to read stories about kids growing up on farms and. Boxcar children, because I was like, why are kids reading yeah. boxcar children? You know, and it's true. And so for me, it was kind of like that. It's an escape because I didn't come up like this. It, it made me want to avoid it at all costs with the, with the sisters. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> and then you also, and, and this is my point, socially, you have this kind of like perfect parents. Mm-hmm. And they give their kids everything they could possibly need. And they still turn out to be kind of... Uh, Screw-ups. And unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, Unpleasant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's an interesting point, the sort of... I think we turn to books a lot of the time to find things that we don't have in our own lives. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a children's book writer, and we were were talking about the boxcar children and those sort of... How we romanticize, like, the pioneers and the people who get snowed in in the schoolhouse for weeks and don't eat each other and sort of have to figure out how to how to live. Um, yeah, the Donner Party is really good for children's books. Right, right. <laughs> there actually is a Donner's party, Donner Party children's book. Is it a pop-up? <laughs> no, it is not. I'm sorry. Just sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Clara. Just couldn't resist. That. Oh no, no. I just I think I I agree with that. I think we kind of and I think especially, you know, I don't want to get political, but I think with the climate that we live in, it's often more palatable to spend time not in our world. <laughs> At least it is for me. I think it's it's a lot more fun to sort of sink into a book and be able to forget about the 24-hour news cycle and everything that's sort of going on. <clears throat> um, so I think that can be that can be a good escape. Um, and I've always, you know, I was, I was very much that kid who wanted to read about 
worlds that don't look like mine. So I, I'm with you. Yeah. Well, you know, we haven't actually even had a chance to get something from uh, Claire's book. We've got some readings, as always. Uh, they're prepared for us by Shanna Van Volt. Today's music is courtesy of the International Anthem Recording Company, as usual, and it's Reservoir. So we're going to take uh, about five minutes, and we're going to listen to an excerpt from the most fun we ever had. And then when we return, we'll be back with Claire Lombarda. You are listening to I-94. He'd come with a heartbreakingly meager amount of possessions. A garbage bag of clothes and a dirty Jansport and a Vera Bradley duffel, a cast-off from his foster mother, Wendy Guest, which rattled when she carried it to the guest room. She entertained the possibility that it was full of artillery, but then reminded herself that he was 15 and his luggage most likely contained electronics, comic books, and porn. He didn't look anything like the baby she remembered from that dark day over 15 years ago. A blessing indeed, because the baby she remembered, despite whatever platitude she'd sued Violet with at the time, looked like a cross between Dick Cheney and Gollum. But now, he looked like Violet. The resemblance was undeniable, especially with the two of them standing uncomfortably side by side in her foyer. We meet again, she said, holding out her hand to Jonah. He'd been politely quiet the day she'd taken him to meet Violet at the restaurant, idle chatter about social studies and martial arts. Now she felt her scalp prickling to attention. I was the first person to hold you, she thought. I saw you get born and I sang you a lullaby version of Shoot because it's all I could think of and I counted your toes because your mom couldn't. This kid would never have any idea how much he'd incited, how much he'd done to them simply by being. He reached out and shook, a good handshake, a man's handshake. She liked kids this age. They amused her and they were likely to be intimidated by her in ways that adults generally weren't. He was handsome and peevish and awkward and he made her heart ache, both because he was so instantly familiar and because she remembered how much it sucked to be 15. We should be all squared away, Violet said, like she was dropping off a flower arrangement. Unless there's, Jonah, is there anything you need? He looked up at her like, how the hell should I know? And Wendy felt a momentary pleasure that he seemed to treat Violet less kindly than he did her. The guest room is all ready, she said, addressing Jonah more than Violet. There's an attached bath. You should have everything you need, at least bare bones. She'd brought little French goat's milk soap shaped like anchors for his bathroom. Bare bones was perhaps an overstatement, particularly given his history. Thanks, Jonah said. Well, I should be going, Violet said. They both stared at her, and she twisted her hands together, looking back and forth between them. Wendy enjoyed, as ever, watching her squirm. As long as there's nothing else you need, Jonah, she said. I'll see you, I guess. Jonah was silent, blinking at her. How about if you guys have dinner, Wendy asked. It spilled from her like vomit. Yes, she had volunteered to take the kid in. Yes, she was happy to have him. But she didn't feel like Violet should be let off the hook quite so easily, sweeping in and out with the ease of a summer storm. She didn't feel like she should once again be solely responsible for the fallout of her sister's whims. Violet looked positively murderous, eyes aglow, teeth clenched so tightly the hinges of her jaw bulged. I'm not sure that we... I actually have something coming up, Wendy said. I'll text you when I pen down the exact date. How about if Jonah comes over to your house that night? She turned to him. Just so you don't have to spend the evening alone in a strange house right off the bat. I have no way of knowing if we'll be free on whatever night that is, Violet said, unsurprisingly trying to cancel the plans before they'd even been made. It's important to me, an old friend of Miles who's going to be in town one night only. 
a lie, but Violet always acquiesced when she played the dead husband card. Violet breathed out slowly. Fine, then, I guess. Sure. Great, she nudged Jonah. Wait till you see the treehouse. I should go, Violet said. She waved both hands like some kind of weird children's show performer. Wendy waited for a thanks that Violet declined to provide. Bye, said Jonah. As if to make a point, he wandered into the living room. Happy trails, said Wendy. But when she watched Violet walk out her front door, she felt nauseated catching her throat, fought the urge to leap into the hall and yank her back inside. Instead, she took a breath, latched the deadbolt, and turned to face Jonah, who was seated rigidly on her couch. Make yourself at home, she said ineffectually, and he blinked a few times and rested one of his elbows on the armrest. Perfect, she said. It's like you've lived here your whole life. That got a little bit of a smile from him, and she buzzed with pleasure. You're rich, huh? He said, pulling nervously at the piping on the couch. She came to sit across from him. What makes you say that? Though, of course, it was obvious she's chosen the blandest and most cookie-cutter modern construction when she moved from her and Miles' house, a massive glassy expanse, clean white lines, and cool gray accents. She found the boring sterility of its soothing. Isn't that a first edition Lord of the Rings? He nodded to the bookshelf by the window. Astute observation. You're a nerd, then? It's my husband's. So he's rich, Jonah said. He was rich, yes. Her throat felt suddenly dry. Now he's dead. Only a second's pause before he replied, So you're rich. I'm comfortable. Violet's rich too. Are your parents rich? He asked. What is this fixation? Are they nice? And that was a reading from Claire Lombardo's The Most Fun We Ever Had. Claire, I thought that was a, a kind of an illustrative scene to talk a little bit about the difference in perspectives of some of the characters, particularly the young boy who was given up for adoption many years ago and comes back into uh, their lives. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, which scene was it? I was... There was silence on. Oh, there was. I'm sorry. I thought you could hear that. Uh, we oh, no, that's okay. we were playing the scene where uh, Jonah comes in uh, for the first time. He's dropped off. Uh, he's left with Wendy, um, and okay. he asks them uh, how uh, wealthy, uh, whether they're wealthy or not, and if they're nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yes, I think that's kind of. I guess an example of Jonah sort of coming in and shedding light. This is such an insular family, and they do have the level of privilege where you don't really have to examine your own privilege unless you choose to because you are so sort of, you know, you have everything you could sort of need. Um, and so Jonah kind of comes in and I think draws attention. He makes them look at their own lives in a way that they, you know, wouldn't necessarily do. And I think Wendy is kind of, Wendy's sort of over the top and I think maybe more self-aware than most of the characters, even though she can be kind of kind of hard to, hard to swallow. Um, but I think, you know, there's a scene later on where Marilyn makes a joke about how big the house is to Jonah and then realizes, like, oh, wait, no, this is a, this is a huge house. <laughs> like, I can't. Um, so I think Jonah kind of serves as, he kind of forces them to look at their lives in this way in terms of, you know, class especially, um, because he sort of the, the haves and the have-nots. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Sorry. It does. It does. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, one of the things we were talking about also uh, just kind of during the break there, uh, are you familiar with the, the works of Elena Ferrante? 
Uh, yes, I have. I've been saving them to read. Well, I read the the Lost Child, the little her novella, which I okay. loved, but I have not read the Neapolitan novel. So it was, you know, those books uh, obviously are about the relationship between uh, two friends, uh, but it, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very deep and interesting look at the lives of working class women. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I would probably argue that it may be the best sustained interrogation into the lives of working class women. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, obviously your book is it's not about working class women, though, though some of the characters mm-hmm. do work. There's not necessarily a lot of discussion about the inner lives of women in a lot of fiction. Most of the fiction that we see tends to be... Um, very male centric, and it's it's notable. Mm-hmm. Even for example, and I'm, I was just thinking today, it's notable when you know Marvel Studios, which releases possibly the, the best grossing films in the world right now. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a news event when they say we're going to make a movie about uh, the Black Widow, who's a female character. You know, right, showing right. off kind of how rare that is. So I wonder if you could speak a little to that before we go to a break. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's something that I, I've always been aware of as a woman writing about women. Um, and I think you are up against kind of, I think people tend to dismiss that, I think, more easily. Um, you know, things are, you know, there's a big debate about what it means to be a beach read, but it's generally not a like complimentary term. <laughs> but I think that, you know, fiction about women does tend to kind of get put into a certain box. Um, but I... I really wanted to sort of dwell in these spaces with these, you know, I think fairly strong women. Some are stronger than others in their sort of the way they move through the world. Um, But that was something that I, you know, I grew up surrounded by women and I've always been sort of fascinated by my own female friendships and they're unique. They're, you know, that's a different type of social interaction. Um, So I really wanted to kind of give that its, its due and examine that as closely as I could, because I think women are, not all women, certainly, and this is not a fair generalization to make, but I think women do tend to overthink things. And, you know, um, I think we could, we have a unique ability to have insight into each other, but also be really cruel to each other. And I think especially with sibling relationships, sisters, as I, you know, I can speak from experience, can be really, really mean to each other in this, you know, this very sort of exacting way. Um, and so I think I wanted to look at, at that. Um, and I also wanted to kind of explore, like, the Marilyn character who faces a number of decisions that I think are commonly faced by women, like the sort of work versus home and, you know, motherhood versus, not that, you know, you're still a mother if you're working, but sort of those choices that you're confronted with um, that are kind of unfairly placed on women. Um, Stay-home mother support. versus... Wasn't she planning on going to school? She was in school. Yes, she drops out of yes. school. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I have to say uh-huh. the the home scenes with with Marilyn and uh, and four girls, you know, spanning what thirteen years, fourteen years, something like that, were mm-hmm. were terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. He says he's the father of a daughter. Yeah, yeah. We I have a three month old daughter, and I think uh, you oh, know, that's wow. good for a while. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Did, do you think yeah, Marilyn? Yeah, got your work cut out for you. Oh sorry, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep fine. walking over you, Claire. I apologize. No, you're you're fine. Do you think? Uh, so, it's inter- I The Marilyn and David perplexed me a little bit because they seemed like perfect parents, as perfect as parents can be. Yet, none of these kids were 
very pleasant, I guess, would be. Well, the, I, I want to get right. into this. Do, do we have time before the break? Uh, let's pick it up after the break. Okay, cool. You know, we got We do have to take a little pause here for station identification and to uh, remember the folks that make this station possible. Uh, we're, so we're going to take a break. Coming out of the break, we're going to have another selection from Claire's book. So, Claire, hang around. Hopefully you'll be able to hear it this time. But we've got about okay. uh, five or six minutes. And then we're going to be back. We are speaking with the author, Claire Lombardo. She just wrote, uh, excuse me, her new book is The Most Fun I Ever Had. We, it is, we, we ever have. had. I'm sorry. Working on, working on uh, a heat-deprived day here for me. Fumes. Fumes. It's fumes. We'll be right back after this. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Grace did not have a middle name, though her sisters got Evelyn, Rose, and Anne. Oh, honey, I don't know, her mother said. I guess we ran out of ideas. She had been hoping for something more mystical, perhaps the confession of a weighty decision her parents had made. You just didn't need a middle name like your sister's, Gracie. You were special enough without one. She knew, of course, that her mother had nearly died when she was born, but it didn't seem that hard to come up with a name. You could have just named me after you, she suggested. She was making a genogram for social studies and sat before an impressive spread of glitter glue and Sharpies, staring at her mother disdainfully over her poster board. Her mom, dubiously examining a batch of tomatoes she had just brought in from her garden, stopped to consider it. It doesn't sound right, she said finally, and Grace had to agree that Grace Marilyn didn't quite have the sing-songy cadence of Violet Rose. What about your middle name, she suggested. Her mother snorted, placing the best of the tomatoes into a colander to wash. It was the least I could do to not curse you with a cliched Irish name. Trust me, less is more. She'd grown up Marilyn Margaret Frances Connolly. Grace conceded that, again, her mother had a point. She still felt robbed, though. She was consistently, across her genogram, inking in middle names with an icy blue jelly roll pen, and it seemed a great injustice that she didn't get to use it for herself. Who is your doctor? she asked. Pardon? Her mother's voice had sharpened. Thompson's named after his mom's doctor because he almost died when he was born. How romantic, her mom said, a meanness in her voice. Mom? Her mother was holding a tomato under a violent stream of water. What? What was your doctor's name? She paused, turned off the water. Jillian, she said. It was rhythmically unsatisfying, but the alliteration was pleasant. She left the space below her own name blank and waited till school the next day to ink in the false middle name. Her parents called her their afterthought. Sometimes her dad called her the epilogue, which she preferred because epilogues were deliberate and valuable. But epilogues also got the shaft because they came after all the important things had already happened. She had a faulty memory that seemed to consist primarily of events for which she had not been present. Sometimes, during family gatherings, she would muster up the courage to speak and say something like, Remember when that lady tried to fight dad for his parking space at the zoo? And inevitably, almost every time, one of her sisters would snort. All of her sisters snorted in disbelief with the same intonation like a tribe of braying elephants. If Wendy were the first to speak, she'd say something like, I do, Gracie, because I was there, you weren't. If it were Violet or Liza, the rebuttal would be equally weary but slightly kinder. You were too, Gracie. Or sometimes, embarrassingly, you weren't even born, dude. But she could see them, these memories, and this seemed a cruel cognitive trick. She could conjure with ease the memory of her father angling the station wagon into a tight spot in the parking lot of Brookfield Zoo, 
only to be assaulted when he emerged from the car by a woman in a Sound of Music sweatshirt who called him a swindler and demanded that he relinquish the space to her. Once she'd raised it, though, her sisters would fly free, sail along without her, cracking up at the dinner table over how David had offered, flustered, to move his car in order to let her have the spot, and how Marilyn, already tired of being at the zoo, though they had not yet entered its arched lion-spotted gateways, got out of the passenger seat and said, This day is harrowing enough as it is. Find another spot. This happened constantly, her family gliding down the rails of memories for which she had not been present. It was disconcerting, especially because some of the memories were less whimsical. She had lots of scary memories whose origins and or validity were difficult to articulate. Scary only in the sense that they diverted from otherwise cheery, pristine norm of her other childhood memories, her mother's luminous smile and her father's strong hugs and her sister's gentle laughter. She remembered Liza babysitting her once and showing her a big star that someone had drawn on the back of her neck. She remembered happening upon her mother once, sitting on the back stairs smoking a cigarette, and she remembered asking, Mama, who gave you that? And her mother stubbing out the cigarette and saying, A bad girl, sweet pea. Come sit with me. I didn't mean we ran out of ideas, her mom said in the kitchen, coming over and kissing her head. We had plenty of ideas. Dad just liked the sound of your name on its own. She didn't have a middle name, and she didn't have her own memories, and this was the trouble with being an epilogue. You got shoved at the end of the book before anyone gave you a chance to read it. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We are speaking with the author, Claire Lombardo. She is the author of The Most Fun We Ever Had. Claire, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Good. So I don't know if you were able to hear that segment this time. I did some I was. great. I did some yeah. board trickery there. So sorry about that in the last time. Uh, no. So so that was obviously a segment, and there's more going on for for people uh, who heard that. There, I, I chose that segment uh, specifically for a couple reasons because the discussion that they're actually having the the daughter and and the mother uh, is larger than just about her middle name. The the, the truth is that uh, the mother almost died in labor. She had to have a C-section, and so she's talking kind of around that with the, the younger daughter. There's also uh, a kind of a funny aside in there where uh, the, the daughter mentions that a friend of hers uh, has been named after a doctor, which uh, raises the mother's eyebrows, which I thought was uh, a little bit of a, a class wink there. But could you tell us a little bit about how that worked in there? Sure. Um, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that's sort of fun about the Grace character is that she is privy to this family in a way that they kind of talk around things, as you said, with her a lot because she's so much younger. Um, and so Marilyn has this kind of traumatic experience giving birth to Grace. Um, and it's something that kind of, it becomes sort of a turning point for the family in a lot of ways, even though she obviously survives. Um, but it's, it's one of those sort of, they're all grateful that she's around, but it becomes kind of this, it sort of sparks this whole different narrative arc for David and Marilyn who have decided kind of later in life to become new parents again, because they've had these three girls in rapid succession, and then they decide, you know, why not? Let's just, you know, let's try it again, like, ten years later. Um, so that's kind of what they're, what they're talking about in that scene. Before the break, Jeremy was, was, was talking about the parents, Marilyn and David, and mm-hmm. uh, this... This uh, perp- idealistic... Yeah, idealistic. Well, and... and yeah. But they're, they're not, really. No. Um, right. And the thing is, we're... For most of the book, we're seeing them through the eyes of their children who have idealized their relationship. 
but you know the, the format of the book is a, a chapter in the present and a chapter from the past and mm-hmm. and a big theme of this book is 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 how the past comes back to haunt the present or how not knowing the past can haunt the present and there mm-hmm. there is there's a scene in particular that really um struck me uh i don't want to give too much away and, and sorry for being a little long-winded but just to give context to, to listeners, um, the third daughter is named Liza. She's pregnant. She wants some comfort, so she decides to go to the doctor who delivered Marilyn when she had the, the emergency C-section. Mm-hmm. That doctor, her name's Jillian. Is it pronounced Jillian? Jillian, yeah. Jillian, okay. Um, oh, no, Jillian. You were right, yes. <laughs> and uh, there is some vague tension about Jillian. Something happened between Jillian and, and David, who, who used to be colleagues. And um, we're privileged to, to see what actually happened from the narrator in a flashback. But Liza doesn't, she doesn't know. And, and it, it's haunting her. She's curious. She knows there was, there was some kind of thing that happened. Then and, she flat out asks And she point, she point blank asks her, and, and, and Jillian gets indignant she's she uh she's pissed and Mm -hmm. they end up they that was over the phone and then liza goes in for an appointment and jillian has this kind of self-righteous indignation like you know where do you get off asking me but she she kind of glazes over the details you know she doesn't she doesn't cop to being the aggressor in the situation um Mm -hmm. and so it's this way of telling liza what actually happened in the past but not telling her at all what happened, what what how yeah. it, how it really was, and it, it it leaves you with this feeling like you can't you can't even when you think you know what happened, you don't know what happened. And yeah. how how did you how did you reckon with that writing the book, and it just how do you feel about that idea in general? Yeah, I think um, you are better articulating it than I probably could. Um, I think it's it's one of those things that. If you're not a very plot-driven fiction writer, that's a way that you can sort of create and maintain tension is having different characters having different levels of knowledge. And I think Liza is a a prime example of that. Liza thinks she knows what happened. Liza has this vague idea. Uh, And then we as readers go into the past and we see explicitly what happened. But then we see, as you said, Liza gets, you know, this sort of non-answer from Jillian that confirms everything and nothing at the same time. Um... And that's the sort of space I was interested in exploring in this book is just kind of miscommunications or secrets or, you know, intentionally withholding things um, and how perception can shape, you know, Liza has made a lot of decisions in her life based on her perception of how her parents coexist. Um, And then that's kind of upended by she thinks she overhears something as a child and it sort of haunts her into her adulthood and then she you know sort of seeks out Jillian again and um so I think that was something for me that it's one of the fun like sort of delicious parts of writing a a very like character driven novel is that they all look at the world differently and they all believe different things and they've all lived the same life together in this house but their perception of it is each like each person has a completely different idea of what their family was like and you know were the parents perfect were they not were the you know was one sister favored over the others and so that's something that i think is fun i mean it's something that's not 
that fun to live, I would say, as a <laughs> oh, person in a big family. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a fun space to explore in fiction. So, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you explain that because you do do a great job and I didn't think about kind of when there's not a lot of plot with the the tension through secrets and that totally makes sense um so I wanted to talk about the tree um before we get into the next reading so it's ginkgo is that yeah the ginkgo tree it's a ginkgo tree and it's uh, a beautiful tree but it's also kind of rotting inside and yeah I thought it was kind of the theme of the book and if i'm not being too like uh over literary here but is that accurate yeah i think that's a good um that was one of those things that when you say that it sounds really good and i'm like yes that is my intention (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i don't know that it was but i think it does you know it does kind of mirror this family it's a it's a a tree that it, it is the scene of a lot of sort of important moments for david and Marilyn. um but then it's you know it has this disease, and it's sort of like atrophying out in the out in their yard. Um, so I think that's a that's a beautiful way to put it. And I may steal that <laughs> for future interviews. Please, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, but yeah, I think it's a uh, trees are sort of, and I think trees are very, you know, trees are everywhere, obviously. But I think in the Midwest, especially, it's kind of the the name of the game. Um, and I think you know, in a place like Oak Park, there's all these hundreds of years old trees that are kind of overlooking everything that's happening beneath them. And so I kind of liked the idea of using something that was alive but not human as a, a piece of this family's story. Did you choose the ginkgo for any particular reason other than it being a big tree? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, they're my favorite trees. So I okay. had them growing up in my lawn or my, my family's like front lawn. Um, and the cool thing about them is that they shed their leaves all at the same time. So if there will be like one day out of the year when it's like raining leaves, and it was always kind of the day that you waited for when I was a kid because it's like this weird, there's just leaves everywhere falling from what seems like the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem, I don't know, I think they're they're not specific to the Midwest, but they are sort of a unique, you don't see them everywhere. Um, yeah, they're Chinese, actually. Yeah. So, Most yeah, famous yeah. tree in a book. Go. Most famous tree? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to point that the ginkgo, the interesting thing about the ginkgo and this is just a weird factoid that I happen to know. It is the only member of its species that is alive. Everything else is extinct. So the ginkgo trees oh. that grow uh, here are the last survivors. It's, a, it's one of the oldest tree phylas, uh, apparently, on the planet, like 250 million years. You're so weird. They came oh, over. I did not know that. Yeah, well, I, I, don't ask me how I know this, but it, I think I was having a discussion with my wife about trees the other day, and the, the ginkgo, that one happens to be it. And it was brought over here because its wood is uh, insecticidal. Oh. That's why. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like you know, the cedar was used to make boxes and stuff, but the the wood of the ginkgo apparently is toxic to insects. They can't take it, so people would. Uh, it's a very hard wood as well, so people would take it and uh, make um, things they wanted to preserve from insects out of it, keeping oh. insects oh. away. You know what I mean? Well, I, Claire, you you'll remember jeopardy. this. I have ash trees at my house, and we have the, oh, okay. the ash borer beetle. Yeah, emerald ash borer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dutch, yeah. And of course, you had Dutch elm disease too, right? Yeah. So yeah. I had the f- oh, no. the one in front of my house had to get cut down, and now the one in the backyard's kind of like the ginkgo tree and my family rotting from this. <laughs> 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 hey, kitchens! Oh, well done. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just I was still thinking of the most famous tree in literature. I, was, I can't even think of a tree. I can't even the, the Bible, the Giving the, Tree. Oh yeah, the, the Giving Tree. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's Boo Radley. 
Oh, Blue Radley. Of course, Kill yeah. a Mockingbird? What's yeah. the Blue Radley tree? The, it's like it's, a linden, isn't it's it? Where, oh, I don't know There's what the tree a, is. Yeah. yeah. But it's where he leaves gifts for uh, Scout, I think. Oh, yeah. right. I'm going to yeah. tell you guys yeah. a quick story. It's totally off the subject. But when I had an idea for a horror story where a tree grew and it had shoes that would appear on it. And all the... All the shoes that appeared in the tree were from a serial killer that killed people around the country, and then the trees, the shoes would appear in the tree, and it's called the shoe tree. The shoe tree? And it's based on a terrifying thing my siblings did to me when I was, like, a little kid. They claimed that this tree it had shoes in it where I was growing up, and they told me that story, so I was going to write it. So whenever oh, we drove by the shoe tree, they'd be like... The killer's waiting for you, Jeremy. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Jeremy's the youngest. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, I'm the youngest. Yeah, so okay, okay. This is a, a good example of something you talk about in your book about how siblings can be cruel to each other. Yes. Yeah. yeah and Claire, I'm, like, fun. way behind like you were, too. Like, my next – I have a stepsister that's 16 years older, and my sister is oh, the wow. closest, and she's six. So I was quite a bit okay, behind. Okay, okay. Okay. That's a, yeah, it's an interesting space to be. You like look at the world. You kind of have a different family in a lot of ways. You have a different set of parents almost. And yeah, when they get to you, they're just yeah. like, all right, take it easy. See how it goes I know. out there. I know. <laughs> kind of amazing, yeah. Yeah, were, they, were, they, yeah. were your parents like that with you because you were the last one? They were like, oh, we've already done this. You, you just figure it out. Yeah, you know, I kind of had the, this weird hybrid. I definitely had that sort of, like they were less terrified of everything and I think less anxious about raising children um but i also sort of had the thing where i was the only kid in a house of adults so i was talked to like an adult uh, for mm. you know most of my of my childhood which was not a bad thing and i think i i kind of had i was almost like an only child because most of my siblings had gone away to you know college or work or whatever um by the time i was you know a teenager um so i was almost kind of like this little like tripod of my parents Marin. <laughs> I was like their roommate or something. So, uh, and very close with them as a result. So I'm grateful for that. But yeah, it's definitely not the norm, I guess. <laughs> Claire, have you gotten any um, any feedback from Oak Parkers who the book might have hit home with, either in a positive or negative way? Yeah, you know, I do. It it, it tends to be more like. I just got an email from someone who said, you know, my grandfather owned a barbershop. It's mostly like, you know, I, people recognize the name. Um, and I think it's mostly people I know who are sort of like, oh, I remember, you know, that intersection or that. You know, it, it, it tends to be more kind of snapshots of like, I, I relate to this. And I'm curious because I, I did a reading in Oak Park, but it was right before the book came out. Oh. Um, because it's not always a very favorable portrayal. No, you carve it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assassinate. Uh, Hard, hardly that's the first why person I asked. to do that to Oak Park, but yeah. Yeah. No, I have. I definitely have a sort of. I have a fraught relationship with Oak Park, and I was happy to grow up there. And I, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I went to. They have great public schools. I had sort of a. Things were, you know, good. I'm very lucky for that. But I do think. I think working at the Coalition for the Homeless also, like, kind of made me realize what a little bubble it is. And, um, you know, you're right across Austin from yeah. the west, from the Austin neighborhood. Oh, yeah, you go past Austin's top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Different hood. Past yeah. Ridgeland. And yeah. I went to school in River Forest. I, I got my library, oh, okay. my master's in library science out there at, at uh, Dominican. And it was, mm -hmm. I lived at the time in Humboldt Park, and this was in the, you know, late 90s. And I would you know, take the North Avenue bus all the way to Oak Park and, yeah. then, and then walk to school. And I just, it's, you know, 
you'd start out like in Humble Park, go through the West Side, and all of a sudden it's like, boom. Yeah, it's Austin, like, nice. Austin is the red yeah. line. Yeah. Austin is literally the, the red the, line. Yeah, Mark it's very, uh, it's striking. And yes. I, you know, I, I would, I would notice that a lot. Um, yeah. And River Forest yeah. is a whole other ball game. That place. Oh is, gosh. Yeah. 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 Terrible. It's one of those. I mean, there's just gobs <laughs> of money in contrast to. It's again the haves and the have-nots, but it's sort of a, there's a lot of hypocrisy. I think I won't yeah, I won't yeah. sort of put my foot in my mouth, but I, I think it's a. Well, it's you're, not, you're not Jamie, wrong. Jamie yeah. just mumbled terrible on his breath. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. So Claire, you also we're running out of the little time here because we do have one more reading, and we like to let you have the last word. But before we do that, I know you've got something coming up at uh, our second favorite bookstore, which is Women and Children First. When is that? Third. Uh, that is on August 8th. What is your first favorite bookstore? Pills and Community Books, of course. Oh, okay. okay. Pills and Community Books. Well, I'm going to say Pills awesome. Community Books, then 57th Street Books, and then okay. maybe on a bridge, then Women and Children first, but that's me. Yeah, Don't forget know. about the dial. Don't oh, on the, the dial, dial, yeah. Well, I, can, I, I loop Pills and, Pills and in the dial together. They're really kind of the same bookstore. It's just in two True. different locations. But uh, that's yeah. on, uh, again, that's on, before we get, you know, too off the rails here, it's Thursday, August 8th, right? Yes, I'm also doing a reading in Oak Park with uh, Rebecca Mackay, who's another Chicago author. On oh, August. we had her on the show. Oh. Yep, Rebecca's been on our show, yeah. Okay, great, yeah, cool. she was uh, one of my teachers at Iowa. Oh, that's oh, great. Okay. Say hi to Rebecca yes. for us. I will, yes. Please do. Um, so, we've been talking with Claire Lombardo. She is the author of The Most Fun We Ever Had. It's out now from Doubleday, and it is a bestseller. So, congratulations on that also. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. We're going to close with a reading from her. We will see you. I, when are, are we back in two weeks? When are two we back? weeks. Two weeks. Colin Asher, the We're new back to, full circle. Back El- to Algren. Oh, boy. Back to Algren. So, there we go. <laughs> Can never get away from Nelson Algren. Claire, thanks so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, Claire. Thank you so much for having me, guys. How worried are we about Gracie? Marilyn asked him in bed that night. One to ten. I don't know, seven? Seven's high. I'm generally about five with her, though, so you have to look at it relatively. When he'd gone to collect Grace at the baggage claim the day before, he'd wanted to cry. Because while it seemed like she'd aged years since she'd last been home, she also still looked so young, as wide-eyed and vulnerable as ever. His fury at the way she denied them the only thing they'd ever asked of her, the truth, was replaced by sadness which rested alongside his concern and his moderate irritation that she'd asked, once they were on Mannheim headed towards home, as though he were picking her up for a normal school break, if they could stop at Johnny Beef's for Italian ice. Just when I was starting to feel so smug about everything, Marilyn said, pride cometh before the fall. We've happened upon the nesting dolls of parenting, Marilyn said. Every time we wash our hands of one, another materializes with a pack of camels. That's the danger of mass-producing children, I guess. You were right, she said. Thanks, he replied. About what? About the fact that we're never going to, you know, reach the finish line with the kids. There's always going to be something. They lay in silence for a few minutes, listening to the house settle, to the wind outside. I was thinking, he said. Were you? She smiled. He could tell she was tired. What about? As long as we're still going full throttle with the rest of the kids, I thought I might talk to Liza. 
He always felt nervous when proposing new ideas to his wife, not because she judged him, but because she tended to support him wholeheartedly, advancing seeds of thought into full-grown blooms practically before the conversation was over. Marilyn got things done. If you ran something by her, you had to be prepared to do it. I thought I might see if she could use a babysitter for the fall semester. Marilyn's face lit up and she seized one of his hands, squeezing it to her chest. Really? I heard that degenerate girl next door with the big spikes in her ears was looking for work, he said, and Marilyn kicked his shin gently under the blankets. Honey, ask her, ask her. Do it now, that's a terrific idea. Call her. Sweetheart, she'll be thrilled. She's been so anxious about going back to work. Call her now, where's your phone? It's almost midnight, kid. Slow your roll. Slow my roll? Grace said it earlier. Bit of disaffected you speak. Well, call her in the morning then, will you? I think it's a fabulous plan. It was sort of funny, if you thought about it, this poetic reversal of roles. His wife cycling off to work each morning at the hardware store while he spent his days swimming in the doll minutia of babyhood. They weren't so old after all, were they? You're wonderful with the babies, she continued. It'll be, I mean... Tedious is an understatement. Ask anyone. Ask Violet. Ask Lies. Ask me if you don't feel like I've adequately briefed you over the last 40 years. But it'll be abbreviated. I'm guessing Lies is going to want to spend as much time at home with her as possible. And you'd be doing her such a favor, David. You'd be giving her such a gift. Well, not a gift. Do you think $35 an hour is a fair asking wage? Don't downplay this, honey. Think I can handle it? She smiled at him. There's not a doubt in my mind. He found her confidence deeply touching. He thought of her desperation in those early days, her panic and her disappointment, the paint fumes in the kitchen. But it made you miserable, he said without thinking. Marilyn looked hurt. No, it didn't. I mean, sometimes, didn't it? She let go of his hand and turned onto her back. Sometimes, sure, I was in over my head, and I was exhausted to the point of insanity, but, I, I mean, of course I was, but it was also immensely gratifying sometimes. I know this isn't the same thing. She smiled faintly. No, it's not. I didn't mean to say you were miserable, he said. Not hardly. It was a blast, day in and day out. His turn to smile. I just know there were things you might rather have been doing. Is that ever not the case? She sounded tired again. No, I guess not. It would be a good thing for you and Liza, and especially for Kit. I'm sure you're wildly preferable to a daycare at a public university. Gee, thanks, he nudged her. Did I offend you? She sighed. Oh, a, a little. It's, it's silly, though. I know what you meant. The girls and I are lucky to have you. Yeah, they turned out so flawlessly, she said. I mean it, he said. She faced him again and kissed him. Sweet man. He moved closer to her, slipped his hand beneath the back of her shirt and pulled her against him. Hey, she said, moving back to look at him. I'm proud of you. The words still meant so much to him, coming from her.
Four is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Claire Lombardo, author of The Most Fun We Ever Had, out now from Doubleday, and debuting this week on the New York Times bestseller list. This episode originally aired on July 21, 2019. I-94 is a and Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.